0: Thanks for listening to Marketing B2B Tech, the podcast from Napier where you can find out what really works in B2B marketing today. Welcome to the latest edition of Marketing B2B Technology from Napier. Today I've got Steve Zaker uh, from Solo Segment. Welcome to the podcast, Steve. Thanks very much, Mike. Thanks, Steve. So, You co-founded Solo Segment. Can you tell me about your career journey and how you got uh, to the point where you decided to found the company? Yeah, yeah,
1: absolutely. So I've been kind of a technology person by trade for a long time, although I've never written a line of code. Um, You know, I've often been that person who is at the interface of business and technology, whether it was back in the days when I worked in finance, I moved into operations, uh, and then in the late 90s kind of caught the startup bug. Uh, I really was excited about the opportunity, uh, especially the way the internet right at that time was really changing and transforming how business was done and worked for a startup for about two years. And like many startups, uh, that went, uh, went essentially nowhere. But I had the good fortune of uh, getting hired by IBM at that point because this was now late 2000, early 2001, and they were You know, hoovering up all of these uh, anybody who could spell .dot com they uh, wanted to hire, and so had the good fortune to get hired uh, at IBM, and then spent 15 years there in a variety of executive roles, uh, primarily focused on what I like to refer to as fixing broken toys. Uh, A lot of work, uh, you know, looking at products, projects, customer relationships that had kind of gone awry, and helping to, to write those. And Last couple of years that I was with IBM, uh, I was working in their, I was responsible for uh, their sales and marketing technology. And it was a pretty hefty responsibility. And of course, being an executive, uh, your job is to take the pain that other executives throw at you. So it really gave me a keen sense for, you know what were the gaps and opportunities, especially with regards to marketing technology. And uh, early in 2016, I was at our Astor Place uh, location and I was walking through the halls And I ran into um, Mike Moran and Mike, who is one of the co-founders at Solo Segment, uh, he was the guy who hired me back in November of 2000 and uh, into IBM. We had lost track uh, for about 15 years. And, uh, you know, literally he was back doing some consulting. Uh, We had a chat by the elevator. and He said, let's have a beer because I've got this idea. And uh, that idea was solo segment. Uh, you know, it, it, uh, he had just gotten started with some development of software that that helped uh, improve website search, um, but it really was that was the starting point. And you know, a lot of our early conversations before I joined him were very much focused on this gap, right? This this where the you know marketing uh, executives you know weren't getting often the value they could out of the existing technology, and and how could we bridge that? And so. You know my journey to solo segment and now spending four years building solo segment and from a you know I guess what you classically think of as a startup into an actual business that operates um, is uh, was really focusing on that those gaps that we saw. And honestly, you know of course, like any good company, listening to you know your customers and and finding you know the nuances and the pain so that you can make sure you're addressing what's important to them.
0: Amazing. And is the founding team, are they still with the company?
1: Yep, they sure are. Yeah. Tim Peter is the third member of the founding team. Uh, Tim is our marketing leader. He's uh, he's a marketing uh, technology person as well. Uh, has a lot of experience in financial services, hospitality, and uh, into the tech industry as well.
0: Wow. So you've got the, the classic sort of CEO, marketing, and technical trio to fo- found the company. That's cool. Yeah, it was. And, and
1: honestly, that's one of the things that drew me there. I mean, you know, I, I know that, you know, from my prior experience, you know, that early team is really important in... Not only the vision, but, you know, uh, it's very easy for you know individuals to make uh, to go astray. But when you have a solid team that you really uh, it, that keeps you honest and keeps you focused on the customer value, it's very helpful. But more than anything, you know, we fill each other's blind spots. Right. And that really was the benefit. The early benefit was, you know, we all had very unique but distinct points of view on the business opportunity.
0: Amazing. I'm, I think I've got a blind spot uh, that I need filling, so um, so segment describes itself as anonymous personalization. Can you, Can you just unpack that and explain what you mean by it? Yeah,
1: you bet. So I mean traditional personalization, I mean it's in the name, right? You know it's all about understanding something about the person. Uh, and so when you look at how personalization technology emerged and and again, this rewinds all the way back to the late 90s, Uh, and especially when you think about what Amazon was doing early on, you know, really understanding patterns and behavior. And there were lots of other companies that did as well, but Amazon, of course, is an exemplar in many ways. In the consumer space, you know, a lot of effort was put into understanding data about the people. And as marketing technology and marketing processes embraced digital, almost everything we do focused on the person. Um, Everything from how the technology identifies people to cookies related to computers, which are related to people, uh, logins, uh, now that data gets, that first party data gets sold as third party data. So basically you can buy information about anybody on the planet. That, That root of the personal data in personalization is deeply, deeply embedded in how we think about web engagement, right? It's knowing something about you and then using that information to help you engage with social conversations that might interest you, to help you find products uh, that might be interesting to you. In the B2B space, it's a little bit different. The challenges were a little bit different. Uh, when you look at the profile of a visitor to a B2B website, um, a very small portion of them are actually identifiable, 3 to 5%. Um, so why is 90 95% of the traffic unidentifiable? For a variety of reasons. Um, First, uh, often what you're doing at work uh, doesn't relate to what you did on your personal computer, although in COVID land, right, you know, uh, (laughs) everything is the same. But uh, but in kind of a traditional view of things, um, you know, what you're doing in your personal life and what you're doing in your business life are very distinct. So there's not that data trail that kind of translates really well. So if I'm on Amazon in the morning buying something and then I go to work and now I'm looking at uh, you know a software vendor's website, there's not a lot of interesting data that translates to that. And that that's part of what leads to that lack of interesting data that's available to B two B marketers. But the other thing, other reason that 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 data is not often available is because of the incentives. Uh, in my personal life in my consumer life, there are lots of incentives for me to share information. Uh, part of it is that, you know, some object appears on my doorstep when I order it. Uh, but the other incentives are, you know, this data is actually, I mean, while there are bad actors and, and whatnot in the marketplace, it's largely being used for good, right? I'm finding the things I want. Uh, I'm being exposed to things that I didn't know I want, but actually suit me very, very well. Uh, anybody who spent any time on YouTube going down deep into holes on on topics of interest knows this. Um, but in the in the business world, the incentives are almost, um, they're almost disincentives, quite frankly, to sharing your information. Um, your uh, part of it is that, you know, if you do share your information too early in the process, you're going to get harassed by sales reps and, and an endless nurture campaign in your email inbox. But there's not a lot of trade for value, right? Uh, you know, getting a white paper and then taking on the burden of these endless emails doesn't often seem like a fair trade for value. So prospects, visitors resist that. And that really at the core is the challenge. That's why anonymous uh, personalization, because what anonymous personalization is all about is creating engaging moments without having to know, oh, this is Mike, and he's been to this website five times in the past, and he's done these certain activities. It's really in the moment. Can you create an engaging experience based upon not specific data about the person, but general data about the behavior. And that's what we like to think about as anonymous personalization, engaging experiences that don't require personal knowledge of the person, primarily because in B2B, it's very hard to get that data. And so why struggle to try and get the data? Why not just accept and embrace what you already have, which is nothing, and use that anonymous data to create those engaging uh, experiences?
0: Interesting. So. I I mean, just explain to to me a little more about what that means. So you're looking at the behavior just on one website and then personalizing based on that? Or how how does it work?
1: Yeah, so we have technologies and some of it's kind of traditional predictive analytics. Uh, There was some machine learning as well, some natural language processing components to it as well. And we're looking at primarily behavioral data. So uh, the two places, the behavioral data that we find most interesting Uh, our first intent data that you can get um, out of a a website's search engine. So while not a lot of people search on B2B websites, um, those who do give you some interesting information about uh, about content and the relationship of content to intent, like what they're interested in and why they're interested in it. And uh, once you understand that, uh, you can then almost reverse it, right? And so for any piece of content, you know what its intent is. And so that's the first piece of data that we look at is intent data on the website, so that we know when somebody's on a page, you know we can make a prediction. That's a, that's the fancy word for in machine learning for a guess. Uh, <laughs> you know we can make a prediction about what the odds are that somebody has a certain intent for a certain piece of content. And as you might imagine, that you know varies by content from by content to content. But the other behavioral data we look at is just all of the visitor journeys that have gone on on the website. Right? People start in one place, they end in another. Uh, and what we're looking for, especially in the longer journeys, the two, three, four, five page journeys, is we're looking for journeys that uh, you know lead to some sort of goal achievement. And by understanding those patterns, um, we can begin, together with that intent data to uh, to make some guesses about when you're on a page, what why you might be there, and what piece of content you might want to see next, right? Based upon the pattern analysis that the machine is doing. And of course, every time, you give the machine some information, the machine makes better uh, predictions going forward. And there's a third piece of data, of course, which is the content itself. Um, We have a natural language processing technology that looks at content and tries to understand what it's about, what its topic is, what industry it might be about. You can imagine a lot of other things that we can discern. And so when somebody comes to a website, you know, we're immediately, the models are immediately running, Uh, they're looking at what the person is looking at, looking at how they're looking at it, right, their scroll depth, how they're interacting with the page, and they're making these predictions of two things, right, based upon the intent, based upon the content, based upon all the journeys that are similar to this one, what might you be trying to achieve and what piece of content might you need to see next in order to progress towards that goal?
0: Uh, That helps. So... I mean, it sounds like there's lots of elements. If, if I look on your website, you've got, you know, effectively four key products identified. Can you mm-hmm. explain how they work together to produce a solution or are they independent?
1: Uh, they can be used independently. They all share a common platform. Um, you know, we are we sell two products, Searchbox and Guidebox. They're kind of our two primary products, um, mostly because that's how our customers think about web interaction. It's, it's kind of interesting. You know, we we separate searching and behavior from navigating behavior. Um, and there's even variations of navigating behavior, right? We have navigation behavior where people are responding to um, to campaigns versus navigation behavior. Maybe they're coming in through organic search or they're, or they're just typing a URL coming direct. So there's lots of different types of behaviors. But when you think about how our customers think about the world, often they think about the website in those two areas, right? We have searchers and we have navigators. And so that's why search box and guide box were delivered, but they all share this common platform. uh, And that is, you know, looking at the behaviors of people on the website and using data to automatically drive improvement. Um, So let's talk for a moment about searching behavior. Uh, In searching behavior, you know, one of the, the key challenges is, a, and and you would think one of the key inputs into search engines, even though it's not, uh, would be, hey, when somebody has a successful behavior on a search, we should you know take that data and do something with it. And that doesn't often happen, right? A lot of how search engines work are based upon how good the content is, but it very rarely looks at the behaviors after the content. So that's what's unique about SearchBox. And honestly, that's where a lot of our intent data comes from, is we're looking deeply at not only what did somebody search for and what did somebody click on? But we're looking at the behaviors after the click to really discern, was this a successful interaction or an unsuccessful interaction? And that not only gives us data about searcher success, which you can then feed back to the search engine to give it some you know information about which links are the better answers versus which links are the worse answers. But more importantly, um, that then becomes a data set where we, we really understand on a specific company's website you know, how good is search and and are those searchers based upon, again, coming back to intent, what they
0: intended to achieve, achieving that thing. Interesting. So you're, you're, you're looking at what people search for and then you're trying to use that to almost assess the value of different content in different situations. Is that how it's working? Yeah, I mean, that's a good
1: way of thinking about it. Um, you know, search engines are always trying to programmatically evaluate content and discern uh, you know, what it's about, and that, of course, once the, once the search engine knows what it's about, uh, you know, through a variety of techniques that are, you know, very mathematically driven, so I won't go into them too much, but most search engines work that way, right? They look at content, uh, that's called indexing, right? They, they gather all the content, and then they evaluate that content to try to figure out what it's about. And we take that whole thing the next step further, which is to say, okay, great, the search engine's done that evaluation, it's figured out what this content is about, But now let's add the user feedback into it, right? Let's add customer experience back into it. And it's not just the customer experience while they're on the search engine results page, but it's really their experience after they leave the search engine results page, after they make that click and start their journey. You know, was that journey actually successful or not?
0: Interesting. And in terms of, of working this out, I mean, I, I think you said the AI guesses. Um, yeah. I'm sure it's a, a lot more complicated than that. Sure. I mean, can you explain what AI gives you that you couldn't get from something that's more of a programmatic formula type approach?
1: Yeah. So, you know, thinking about AI, um, it's one of the ways I like to think about it, and, and I think it helps marketers think about it, is kind of the traditional ways of doing um as you said, programmatic sort of solutions to this problem uh, is very similar to A-B testing, right? So you come up with an A ad and a B ad and you run them and you see which one performs better. And then you start, you know, the machine would automatically say, you know what, B is doing a lot better. Let's promote B. And so that's kind of a traditional way of thinking about those. You have, you posit two um, hypotheses and you test them. Um, What machine learning allows you to do is to not have to come up with, the hypothesis right you don't have to come up with the A and the B Um, you actually come up with a goal right so you define I want more leads and what the machine is going to do is it's going to come up with the A and the B and the C and the D and it's just going to constantly try to optimize on that goal versus optimizing the two choices you have given it and so in the same way when you think about all this journey analytics that goes on We're compiling all of this information about people and their interactions with the website on a continuous basis. Now, some of those interactions are very small, right? Somebody responds to a campaign and leaves the site, a one-page visit, a bounce. Um, Sometimes they're very short. You know, you look at a lot of these companies and their goal is to get two pages per visit on average, right? So they're very short interactions. But when you can look at the longer interactions, um, you just have so many of them that it's hard to for a human to kind of discern the pattern and choose, you know, which of these two uh, two pathways are better, right? And and the human defines the pathways. So instead, we just tell the machine, you know, we want more downloads, we want more uh, contact forms, we want more whatever. And now the machine knows that those sorts of events are the goals, and it's going to look for the patterns that uh, that lead to the goals, and. Over time, as somebody comes to the website, uh, it will recognize when somebody's on one of those patterns. And it could be as simple as, gee, everybody who starts on this page, who happens to land on this page, has an 80% likelihood that they're going, that they're shooting for the contact form. Let me nudge this person forward uh, to try to get him to the contact form, right? So it's that's the kind of predictions that the machine's working on but the the real difference between programmatic ways and machine learning ways is in machine learning you define the goal and once you've defined the goal uh, the machine can figure out the optimal ways towards achieving the goal versus having to draw you know for a human to actually have to figure out well here's the five ways to the goal we're going to test let's just figure out which of my five ideas is best
0: interesting so I, I mean, how does a a, a user use Solo Segment? It, it sounds like you know there might be this incredibly complicated setup before suddenly the magic happens. It, it, is is it tough or is it straightforward?
1: It's relatively straightforward, I'll say that. Um, and you know, we're working every day to kind of make it more straightforward. You know, certainly when uh, when I was in my role at IBM, you know, one of the deep pain points uh, that we had was time to value. Uh, you know, we were a large enterprise. Um, when we bought large enterprise software, uh, it was often complex to uh, implement. Uh, it was uh, often, uh, and part of that was by design, by the way, right? Because it's, it's a far easier to retain uh, a software, you know, a, retain an account if you're a software vendor, if it's hard to unplug you. So I think some of that complexity was by design. But um but, you know it required integrations with systems that you know we had whether it was integrating to the crm system or or our fulfillment systems and so it was, the time to value was was you know one of the biggest struggles that you'd be a year into a contract and you're just getting the most basic function sort of deployed and i think that's where you know where i started in my role there you know getting involved in a lot of what i would refer to as best in class vendors right these smaller vendors Who were far more agile their price points were a lot more appealing and uh and you know often they didn't require the complexity that that these larger kind of more traditional vendors required and so that was really our goal when we were thinking about what type of company do we want to be you know we started off with this idea that we don't want to be a company that makes it really hard to manage the data and that was part of our you know focus on anonymous data versus personal data but the other thing was you know we want to make it easy to get started And so, I mean, SearchBox is the easiest product to get started with because, um, you know, it gathers all the data via JavaScript. You put a couple of lines of code on the page and it just begins to, uh, to gather data about what's going on in search and what's going on after search. And that was our first product, by the way. And so that design decision where we said we're not going to integrate with the technology that our customer uses, whether it's their web analytics or their search engine, we're going to use JavaScript to capture the data ourselves, that now kind of pervades everything we do, right? What can we do with the JavaScript to make it easier for our customers to adopt, and honestly, make it easier for us to get them to value, right, the, You know, to speed the time to value? So JavaScript is a way that we gather a lot of data, much like any analytics program does, And we also, the second way we gather data is we search the website like a search engine would so we can index all the content and apply our NLP against uh, those indexes that we create of all the content. But um, we try to make it as easy as possible. And again, having been uh, in large enterprise marketing tech, uh, I get the pain point and the time to value problem. And so that's part of our
0: goal. But it sounds like you you can load that JavaScript, things start happening immediately. And then you obviously need to presumably give some idea of what a conversion is, whether it's a a form fill or something, is is that right? Uh, Yes and no. Uh,
1: So the general um, process is that JavaScript gets installed and for some companies, uh, and by the way, some people think when I give these examples, oh, well, he's talking about the small company had an easy time and and a big company had a hard time. It actually doesn't matter on company size. It's often uh, just, you know, where the paranoid dial is set at some some companies set it at 11 and break it and some companies set it at four but you know getting that javascript deployed you know is usually a couple of weeks just because these large companies have processes that they want to go through to you know test them and put it on board um, and then we usually need some baseline set of data to get both search box and guide box to work because all of these learning technologies uh, you know, just they, rec- they they need to learn, right? They need some data set to learn. And while the holy grail is some general model that will work across all businesses and all industries, the reality is it has to learn on the behaviors of each of our clients. So that usually takes about 30 days, um, and again, it depends on the size of the client and the volume of data. But most of our our clients are dealing with tens of thousands of pages of content and hundreds of thousands of visits a month. And so we pretty, much, pretty quickly gather enough data, enough head of steam, if you will, enough learning that the models are working within 30 days or so. And, and that's when uh, the client can begin to really get value from them. Um, where, uh, where the client has some work to do, uh, of course, is getting through all of their processes to deploy, uh, deploy the code. And they have to make some choices. Some of our technology appears on the glass, right, that we deliver uh, some sort of user experience. And so they have to decide, uh, you know, share with us their design um, uh, standards and whatnot. So we make sure that it looks like something that comes from that company. But, you know, again, our goal is always
0: to kind of lower the barrier to getting started, lower the barrier to time to value. And it sounds like you're you're also giving a little bit of consultancy in terms of, of helping the the customer. Is that right? I mean, it sounds like you're not a, a classic SaaS vendor that you sign up online and you're on your own.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, we had intended to be that SaaS vendor who sign up. <laughs> and, you know, that was our intent. Um, and, and by the way, I experienced this again in my career. Uh, you know, these large enterprises, um, they are they can be high touch. Uh, so, uh, you know, they, you know, when I think about all of our client relationships. Um, you know I know most of my clients, uh, but um, you know we you know I try to make sure that I'm speaking to them fairly frequently. But their, I mean, the nature of their businesses is they're large and complex. And so because we have a point of view on uh, on not only our area of expertise, which is in digital engagement, personalization, sort of technologies, but on how those technologies integrate with the entire marketing processes, You know, you bet. Our customer success people uh, definitely, um, you know, chat with our clients about broader issues. And in some cases, we do some consulting uh, where they ask us to go deeper than, honestly, a software vendor might normally. But where we have some expertise, uh, we definitely do that. I mean, I never want to turn away a client who who we can help uh, extract value. But our core really is, you know, how do we make help the software drive value? Because... At the end of the day, you know, my frustration uh, as an executive was always that you know I'd get the the PowerPoint and you know it would be 102 pages of insight, but how do I then execute that right? And it's really hard to do so. And what where we want to focus on is how do we use data to automatically drive improvement? Whether that's data that's automatically improving the search experience, or whether that's data automatically helping uh, navigators. But there is far too much content, there are far too many visitors, and there's far too few resources, whether it's money or people within these ROH enterprises, to do anything manually. And so, you know, it's funny, uh, we have a dashboard for all our products that shows the value, et cetera, et cetera, um, and our clients rarely use them. And so we knew, that, like that was an early feedback point, you know, we knew that sharing data was not the most important thing, right? Using that data in a way to automatically make things better was a lot better than sharing a dashboard which gives some overworked marketer more work to do
0: and i'm intrigued i mean obviously as a a company you're really focused on value and i guess one of the the ways of measuring value is is in terms of number of leads and cost per lead Mm -hmm. is that the primary way people measure or there are other ways that people look at value from the product yeah i think
1: that um the folks that you know, that's those are certainly top of mind measures for all of our clients. Um, you know, they are under pressure to deliver MQLs, right? That is the uh, <laughs> that is the ultimate the ultimate point of the exercise. You know, of course, uh, when we're one piece of an integrated stack uh, in a very complex business, it's hard to do attribution, right? That is the Achilles' heel of everything that marketers do, and quite frankly, the marketing technology companies do. So you know, what we're looking at is, well, what are the metrics that lead up to an MQL that we can contribute to in some meaningful way and measure from an attribution perspective very specifically? So certainly we're looking at, you know, a lot of those leading metrics, right? So are we getting more engagement? And engagement is a fairly complex algorithm, but it it basically means are more people staying on the site? Are they seeing more content? Are they progressing more towards their goals, right? So those are that's our viewpoint is we want to increase the level of engagement with content on the website Um, where we can measure uh, those goals and we tend to refer to them as events because i think goal has a very specific meaning right a goal is something that a marketer has defined as the point of a campaign say or a product manager is defined as you know on this page when somebody gets to it they're going to take this specific action one of the things we do when we evaluate the content automatically on a website is we look for places where people can do stuff, right? So it it could be if you had a say a commerce element. Two of our clients have a relatively small portion of commerce on their website, but they have carts and they have checkouts and those sorts of things. So we look for those sorts of events. But the other things that are more common are events like, you know, download the white paper or fill out the contact form or those sorts of things. And so what we're looking for is signals that indicate that uh, one of those events have taken place. And that, of course, you know, once we see a signal uh, that an event has taken place, we're then going to try to drive more people who fit that pattern towards that event. But that's really our goal. So as opposed to leads, I think the the thing you could most likely attribute our technology towards driving is probably contacts, right? That people are actually taking some of those events, or, and and sharing their information so that now they' they can fall into quite frankly a personalized experience right So now they can fall into a technology which will nurture them with an email campaign or will you know prompt a sales rep to make a call
0: Brilliant that's that's really clear I um, you said earlier um, you were talking about you know typically having hundreds of thousands of visits for for a typical customer I, I mean can you talk to me about you know who benefits the most from using solo segment? Yeah, so these are generally companies
1: um, that are kind of later to the digital game. I think that there are a fair amount of companies, very mature companies, digitally mature, by the way. I, you know, it's funny how interesting you know company size almost is not a predictor of digital maturity, but um, it's somewhat related, but not highly related. Uh, but you know, we're talking to a lot of companies who are a little bit later to the digital game, right? That they're. They you know, didn't get involved early, but they're looking to advance quickly. And you know, I think one of the frustrations that these companies often face is that you know, they go to some of these large integrated vendors uh, and you know, they're faced with you know, six-figure, seven-figure license fees and you know, equally six-figure, seven-figure in- integration installation fees and, of course, you know, months and months to value. And so so these, so these companies that are coming a little bit later to the game, they see that, they're a little intimidated, and now they want to think, well, how can I get started without having to take that huge bite? So those are companies that are very good for us as well. Um, we deal with some large manufacturing companies, some large chemical companies, um, medical device manufacturers. I have been very popular now in COVID. Um, but it's these companies who are a, a little bit late to the game and want to accelerate uh, are very good. And generally, the folks we're talking to are, uh, you know, the people who are really at the at the tip of the spear, you know, uh, all CEOs with their, you know, favorite, you know, people like me, right? I want to go <laughs> talk to the CMO and I want to have a great relationship. But, you know, at the end of the day, the CMOs don't feel the pain as acutely as, say, a senior manager or a director of marketing, right? They are, they live where the pain is. And so, you know, we have a lot of conversations with those folks who are wrestling with, you know, yield on their marketing campaigns with, um, with you know just you know engagement on the website. You know they've got a eighty percent bounce rate and you know every page has a ninety percent exit rate. You know so they're, they're they're really dealing with you know trying to create engagement, connection with their clients. Um, but we're we're fairly industry agnostic. But it's really, you know, helping to talk to the po- folks who really you know are at the tip of the spear with regards to the pain and the, the challenges that the business is facing.
0: That's interesting. So. You're almost coming in to people who are, you know, lagging behind and giving giving them a bit of a, a speed boost to yeah, to absolutely. catch up. Yes, cool. and I'm interested. I mean, you talked about bounce rate. You know, people having 80 percent bounce rate, which I know in on some sites is the case. So, solo segment can really make a difference on that first page in terms of serving the right content. Can it?
1: Yeah, you bet. Um, you know, I think and I don't think marketers think about it this, but certainly lay people think about it like this, uh, or people maybe who aren't marketers, but you know, finance folks and, and all those other people who exist in a corporation, you know, they always think about, um, somebody comes to our website and they're coming to the homepage and they're navigating around, and that's not the way it works at all, right? Uh, a very small portion, everybody, most people come in sideways, what I like to think of is sideways, right? They come in the back door, they come in the, the side door through the garage, because they're most often, you know, going to Google and doing a search, Uh, And, you know, they're landing on some random page on the website and, you know, for a marketer, you know, we spend a lot of our time and attention on the high value stuff, right? So we spend a lot of time on campaigns uh, and campaign landing experiences and, you know, increasing yields there. We spend a lot of time on our top products. We spend a lot of time on this homepage because the CEO thinks it's important. And so... We spend a lot of time on those experiences and they account for a very, very small fraction of the total of visits to the website. And so, you know, part of the reason that you know we focused on this anonymous idea was also because there's so much of the content that's anonymous. Um, when you think about, again, somebody coming to the website on any random page, and then you draw a histogram that says, you know, lists all the web pages and how many visits they got this month. You know, there are probably 150 pages that got 90% of the traffic. And then there are 15,000 pages that got two or three visits each. But each one of those visits was important to the person who found it. Now, granted, a lot of people get to places that Google sends them that aren't very valuable. But again, whoever came into that page that only got one or two page views a month, they had a purpose. And of course, nobody creates a bespoke experience on a page that gets one or two page views a month. And so, you know, part of our thought was if we can provide the ability to somehow figure out somebody's on a page, where can we send them next? that helps you avoid that bounce it helps you if that's their second page avoid the exit it gets you that continued engagement right it gets you another swing at the plate to use a, you know american baseball term right so you know your swings at the plate are the kind of the things that you want right you don't want to strike out you don't want to get an out right you want to you know have a lot of opportunities as a as a baseball manager to you know get people on the field and so in the same way as a marketing manager you want the opportunity to somehow connect with this person and so if they're coming to the site and they're uh you know 80 of them are you know bouncing out uh, then you know anything you can do to reduce that rate is critical uh, we had one client who uh, we've done a couple case studies on this and really studied it deeply uh, and one client in their first uh, six months of having guide box on the page they reduced their bounce rate by 12 points And so, you know, it was a pretty significant opportunity for them to turn those one-page visits into at least two-page visits. And, you know, again, you know, were all those successful? Absolutely not. But would you like to double your opportunity to engage with somebody? You know, absolutely, everybody wants
0: that every day. That's an amazing stat. And I think, you know, it's interesting. It sounds like you're almost learning about the visitor from the page they land on because you're you're effectively. inferring how they got there in terms of search. Is that, crudely speaking, how the AI is doing it?
1: it is but it, and it's also inferring you know why they're there and again it's you know we've never really studied to say you know how often is it right you know we don't do surveys of people to see if we got in their minds but you know but you can look at the data right and if you're giving somebody a very smart recommendation about oh you like this content you know maybe you'd like to see this next and that's one of the modals that we use is is kind of a it's a content recommendation sort of thing much like mm-hmm. say amazon does product recommendation What we're trying to do is offer people really smart alternatives. Uh, I mean, when you look at any, uh, any large enterprise and pretty much any company's uh, website, uh, it's organized like their organization chart is organized, um, not how their customers think about their problems. And so you know, not only do they have many ways off the page, um, one of our clients we counted, uh, they have 70 ways off their pages because they show this huge menu and there's this you know, right side navigation bar and there's a left side navigation. It's just this hugely confusing user experience. And again, you wouldn't do that for your best products, but there's a lot of other things on your website that you just don't have the time and energy to invest in. And so, with Guidebox saying hey, here's three options to progress your journey some way. Would you like to choose one of these three things? That seems really smart. You know, it's a way of creating that engagement that you know allows somebody to not be honestly intimidated by all the choice that's uh, before them, and and much of that choice being irrelevant to them.
0: Wow, well, that's that's cool. I mean, you know, it's, it, effectively Solo Segment sat there. It's it's customizing tens of thousands of pages for hundreds of thousands of visitors. I, I, I've got to ask this question because I'm sure people listening are wondering. It, it's terrifyingly expensive, right? <laughs>
1: Uh, actually it's not i mean that is i mean that's one of the things that um while i'd like to choose to charge people a lot of money and make make a lot of money um you know it's actually it's pretty modest with regards to uh marketing technology spend uh you know you're spending uh you're not spending millions of dollars um and most folks aren't even spending hundreds of thousands of dollars right there you know it's relatively modest and it scales honestly to the size of the enterprise So. You know, we have companies, uh, and I know small as sounds weird, but as small as $300 million so, uh, in revenue. Um, so, so we can make you know, the, the solution scales in a way that makes sense for you know, most of the large enterprise companies that we deal with. Um, you know, the, the thing that um, we're also working on is a way to scale this down because the models are driven by data and so um so you need a fair amount of data but what we're looking at is some alternative algorithms that try to uh do the same predictions that we do on large enterprise and small enterprises As a matter of fact we have a beta of it running on our website and uh, i don't know how many pages of content we have but not not tens of thousands that's for mm-hmm. sure and um and so we're looking at ways to scale this down uh, in a way that still creates that meaningful engagement Uh, because you know at the end of the day you know the marketer wants you on the site they want you progressing towards some goal they want swings at the plate and so if we can do that for companies the scale of john deere while at the same time doing it for companies the scale of solo segment um, we think there's that's a tremendous opportunity we're not quite ready for prime time on that scale down model uh, because there's still uh, some things that we have to figure out how to scale on the back end, because as you would imagine, uh, what we did on our website was a little bespoke. But, you know, we're definitely uh, we're definitely looking at those models because, you know, there we you know think there's a great economic opportunity for us. And there's no reason it's just the big guys should get uh, all the value from, uh, you know, better engagement.
0: Well, definitely let us know when you've got a product, because I'm sure we'd love to have it on our website as well. That'd be great. <laughs> Sounds good. I I mean, it it does sound amazing, you know, for the the cost of, you know, probably uh, two or three really good marketers, you can get this huge amount of personalization that just would be impractical if you were trying to do it manually. I mean, you know, I can certainly see the potential in terms of return on investment there. That's great. Yeah,
1: you bet. I think that's a great way to think about it. I mean, how many people would you have to add to get, you know, engagement on the long tail of people who are coming to
0: your website? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so y- you've given us a little hint about the future in terms of, of where you might go. Um, is there anything else that um, you feel we should cover? Any, anything you'd like to talk about in terms of solo segment or um, something about the technology I've missed?
1: Yeah, no, I think, I think part of it is, uh, you know, one of the things I think we didn't talk about was a little bit more about, like, why is this the moment to be thinking about mm-hmm. anonymous engagement? And you know anybody who's in advertising is now trying to figure out what to do now with the the death of cookies is kind of the the thing that's out there. But it, what what the larger trend is is, you know, people are tired of their data getting stolen and misused. Uh, regulators have responded by that with GDPR and the California Acts and a lot of others that exist around the world, and and now the software industry, most notably the browser industry, is acting to you know, limit the amount of data that browsers will transmit to companies. And so this is, you know, most immediately folks are freaked out. Marketers are freaked out by the fact that uh, ads, the ad business is going to change dramatically. Um, You know, we we heard Twitter and Facebook already talking about how their ad revenues are going to go down. Well, when ad revenues go down, that means advertisers have less opportunity to engage, right? Because that's why they're going down. Mm -hmm. And so You know, there are certainly some headwinds and significant headwinds. And I think they're only going to increase uh, over the coming years with how we're using personal information. And especially when you're a B2B marketer, you know, it's already harder to use personal information. And so, you know, to the extent uh, that companies can, they really should be starting to think about, you know, how do they create engaging visitor experiences um using data other than personal data because they're already starting at a deficit right they you know very small percentage of the visitors who come to these websites are engageable that we can know something about them and if it's only going to get more difficult you know kind of doubling down on a traditional personalization strategy just seems like folly because you know the regulators aren't going to change the direction uh Apple Google and Firefox aren't going to change their direction and so I think that the smart marketers are not only addressing kind of the current pain they're seeing, but they're actually starting to think more strategically about how are they going to operate effectively? How are they gonna achieve their business objectives, deliver those MQLs, deliver you know more contacts in a world where personal information
0: is going to be increasingly rare? Wow, that's um, certainly a trend we're seeing. And I know iOS, for example, a lot of people are freaking out over the, the oh, yeah. uh, privacy there. And yes. For for the advertising industry, so uh, I think it's a great point. You know, it really is a time when people need to be thinking about what's next, and and you give this opportunity for really effective personalization without any kind of privacy issues. That's that's cool. Yeah, indeed. So. Assuming we've got somebody listening who's, you know, um, responsible for a website that's, uh, you know, got several hundred thousand visitors or more a, a month. I mean, is there any way they can get in contact with you? You're the CEO of the company. I mean, yeah, I, I, well, I suppose could, there's a could, way they can get you.
1: <laughs> yeah, they could definitely get me, and my email is probably on the website somewhere. But uh, yeah, I mean, honestly, they could actually just uh, email me directly, Steve at solosegment.com, or they could go to the website solosegment.com. Uh, hit me on LinkedIn or Twitter, right? Uh, I'm, I'm available in all the normal ways. But yeah, I'd be happy to have conversations and you know direct them to the right people in our organization who uh, can continue the conversation.
0: Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast, Steve. I mean, there's so much more we we could ask you and, and find out. Um, all I ask is if you could come back when you do have a, a product that works with smaller websites, I'd love to talk to you again. You bet, Mike. Thanks very much. Thanks so much for listening to Marketing B2B Tech. We hope you enjoyed the episode, and if you did, please make sure you subscribe on iTunes or on your favorite podcast application. If you'd like to know more, please visit our website at napierb2b.com or contact me directly on LinkedIn.